All right, Matthew 2. Let's do this thing. Um, as you're turning there, uh, we want, uh, tonight is actually going to be even a little more different than different. So um, we are going to do our breakdown, um, but just because of the way that Matthew 2 is written, uh, it is really laid out like a story. Um, and so we had kind of, we got into this world with the book of Romans, uh, where we were moving verse by verse, because you could do that with Paul's writing. Um, there's going to be different chapters of Matthew where we're literally just going to read it. And then come back and revisit, okay? Because if we try to break it up, it'll just get convoluted. And it just makes more sense if we read the story, understand it, and then revisit the things that um, when you just read it, you may not pick up on. But we want to highlight and recognize what it is Matthew's trying to teach us, okay? So that's what we're going to do tonight. If you don't have a Bible, use your phone. If you don't have a phone that has a Bible, get out from under that rock. It's 2023. Just join the rest of us. All right, so... Um, but no, we're going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We're so grateful, so grateful for you and who you are, what you're doing in our life, what you're doing in our church, what you're doing in everyone here, God. And so, Lord, uh, I just pray that you prepare our hearts tonight. God, as we prepare to read your word, I pray that your word would read us. Show us all the ways that we can be transformed. It is alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What it cuts between bone and marrow, it, it, it it dissects us. It, it goes to the deepest parts of our hearts, if we'll let it. And so, God, I pray that tonight we would let it and uh, continue just to see you for who you are, Jesus. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we, spent, uh, we spent almost two years going through the book of Romans. I can't believe that, but it happened. And uh, amazing. And in the book of Romans, one of the, our, our goal was to see what, what is it that Paul was speaking to Rome that they needed to get together as the Roman church? What was it that was broken? What was it, what is he speaking to them? And what were the things that he was speaking to them that are applicable to us? Because for the record, listen to me, lean in for a second. Everything in the Bible is not for you. Okay? So if you want to know what Ezekiel has to do with a valley full of bones and what that has to do with your life, the answer is nothing. Okay? So, but all that I say is everything in the Bible is not written to you. Right? But we have to pull out what's, what is for our good versus what is to us. And that, those things are delicate, and that's why we do this the way that we do it. In Matthew, what we're doing in Matthew is what we're doing, and this is probably going to take, it's, this might take four years, but we're going to go through Matthew. We're going to put Jesus above all things, which is what Matthew does throughout his writings. So um, just to kind of give context in case you weren't here, Matthew is a tax collector that became a disciple. Now, uh, think of how much you don't like the IRS, all right, and they were even worse, okay? Uh, so the reality is they, he stole from his people. Um, so it wasn't just that he was a tax collector. He, he raised taxes, so he inflated taxes so that he could put money in his pockets. Jesus saved him, uh, rescued him, and then he became a disciple. And so Matthew, as he writes, he has some goals. He has some things he's trying to accomplish uh, as he's writing. And so I just want to give some of those to you very quickly. Uh, number one, his goal, and we talked about this last month, but we're going to keep revisiting it just to make sure everyone's caught up. All right. So um, his, his first aim or goal is that he wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you see stories of Moses, you see, you see uh, prophecies from Isaiah, you see David and Goliath, you see all these different stories, uh, and he wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to harmonize Jesus' teachings 
with the Old Testament teachings. All right, so he wants to create synergy. He wants to show you that Jesus' teachings aren't telling you that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Jesus' teachings are helping you understand what the Old Testament purpose was. And so he's, trying, he's gonna harmonize those teachings, especially considering how the religious leaders, right? If we think about Jesus comes to earth, he's raised, and as he starts teaching, Right As we look in the, in the Gospels, as he starts teaching, something special happens. Because uh, the Jews have had thousands of years of the same teaching. And Jesus comes on the scene, he's like, well, hold on a minute. And all of them are like, whoa, 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 right? And so the religious leaders, they're trying to say what's happening. And, and more than just the religious leaders, there's even the church is saying, we've been faithful to God Yahweh, the God of Israel, we've been faithful to him, and you're telling us to be faithful to him might look a little bit differently. And he says that it's not just that it might, it absolutely will. And so we, what Matthew's goal is to show you that Jesus never intended to change their image of God. He just meant to clarify it. And so that's what he aims to accomplish. The next thing he wants to do is he wants to elevate Jesus' teachings. So this isn't a man. This isn't a, a rabbi, as we see him called often. This isn't, he's not those things exclusively. He, these are the teachings of God coming through God in the flesh, who is Jesus. So Matthew's goal is to elevate his teachings. And then the last thing, uh, his fourth aim is to, or goal, is to identify Jesus as the king of the Jews. Okay? And so I want, to, I want you to keep in mind the, the Jewish people have been waiting for a king. So let's take just a, a little mini trip for a second, right? Uh, they've been beaten down. They've been in war. They've been in bondage. They've been in slavery. They've been in all of these things. And then as soon as they get out, they do something stupid and they got to fight somebody again. Uh, or they go to, a, they go to the province, they got to fight somebody again. And so what we see for the Israelites, what we see for the Jews uh, in this time frame, is that they're God's people, but they're constantly at war. And so, but they know, according to the prophet Isaiah, according to Samuel, according to all these people that are speaking through the Old Testament, they know that there's someone coming that's going to bring peace finally. And he's going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And so for thousands of years, they're just waiting and waiting. They're, they're sitting and going, Wait, we know he's coming. We know he's coming. We know he's coming. And finally, Jesus comes on the scene and they're like, praise God. He's fitting to mess stuff up. Right? The problem is he messes stuff up, but what he messes up is their theology <laughs> and their religiosity Right? He doesn't come in and wage war against their enemies that they see. He wages war against the enemies that they do not see. And so Jesus comes on the scene and, and they are frustrated and let's be honest, confused. Because he says, my kingdom's not of this world. And they're like, cool, 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 cool. But we need a kingdom on this world though. We're tired of fighting. We're for generations we've been doing so. He's like, yeah, but my, what, what I'm building for you will last forever. They're like, can it last forever here, though? He's, he's like, you guys aren't getting it. To the degree that even when we see him interact with Matthew and Peter and some of these others, he tells them, and then you, two chapters later, they're like, but not for real, though, right? Like, you're just, that's, that's like a metaphor. You are actually going to build a kingdom. And he's like, do I have to say it again? Right? And so we see... 
that Matthew is, wants to show Jesus as the king of the Jews, but that means a lot. When you say that, that phrase means a lot. So when he comes in as king of the Jews, we pick up chapter 1, just to give you context. You don't, we're not going to read that, but I just want to give you the, the things that came out of chapter 1 because it matters as we go to chapter 2. And so Matthew did four, he identified four things in chapter 1. First, Jesus is the Messiah. Right? So he starts off, Jesus is the Messiah. The second thing he identified was that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. All right? When we go to Genesis 12, 3, you don't have to go there, but it says, uh, I'm going to bless the nations through you. If you were here last month, you might remember us talking about it. I'm going to bless the nations through you. Well, he was talking to Abraham, but what's the ultimate blessing all the nations of the earth could have? A Savior. And so he's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Then he's the fulfillment of the seed of David. So this is the next thing Matthew points out, is that Jesus came, but he came as a seed of David, who was the king, which fulfills the prophecy in 2 Samuel, where, where God, through the prophet Samuel, speaks to, uh, speaks to uh, David, right? And he says, of the house and kingdom will endure forever. So from your house, David, in other words, from your lineage, from your bloodline, the king that will rule forever is coming from your bloodline, right? Again, they don't know what it means, but he fulfills the prophecy. And then lastly, he fulfills all the prophets, including uh, Isaiah 7, 14, where he declares that he's going to be the God that is with us. And that's where we get our Christmas verse. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Everyone remembers that? Makes sense? All right, that was prophesied from Isaiah. And then in Matthew, he points it out in chapter 1. All right, we're all caught up. There's your history lesson. Okay, let's go to chapter 2 and, and kind of break down what is happening here. So we're going to read the full chapter right now. So get out your Bibles, get out your phones, iPods, I, I, not iPods, that's, what year is it? iPhones. I was thinking iPad, iPhone, and iPod came out. What in the 2003? Anyways, all right. And uh, if you have an Android device, surely it'll work. I don't know, maybe. If, if nothing else, prop up the chair with it so it's not leaning one way or the other. That's about what it's good for. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. All right, let's go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him to me. Or sorry, bring him. Bring me word that I too may go and worship him. I'm sorry, it's dark. That's why I was jacking these words up. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, where he said, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that, what, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard, sorry, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called a Nazarene. Boom, we did it. All right, so catch you over the story, just brief overview. Jesus is born, right? The Magi go to see Jesus by way of Herod. Herod finds out there's a king, the, the future king of the Jews is here. Herod, as the king, current king, is like, nah, bruh, no, right? Because he's, he's coming to take my kingdom. And so he's, he asked the, the wise men or the magi, wait, go find him, bring me word. And in his heart, he knows, because I'm going to kill him. What he told them is, I want to worship him. But what he wants to do is actually kill them. They go, they find Jesus. As they find Jesus, uh, they have a dream where the Lord speaks to them and says, don't go back to Herod. So they don't. Uh, and then as that happens, Herod puts out a kill order on all children two and under um, until the day that he dies and Jesus is moving around from Egypt to Galilee throughout this whole process. All right, so that's what's happened so far. Now, what we want to do is we want to visit certain key parts of this passage because what we do is we want to highlight what it is Matthew's trying to tell us. And so Matthew's trying to give us some indicators, some information uh, by all of this. And more importantly, he's trying to solidify what he's already made as a goal of what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he came to accomplish. So let's go to verse 1, because verse 1 is where we see the very first thing that Matthew wants us to understand, right? And so as, as we go to verse 1, now after Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, all right? Now this is important for two reasons. One, this is important because the prophet said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, so that needed to happen. And secondly, this is King David's hometown. So... 
He, he's fulfilling the prophecy. So he's letting us know where this happened. It's not just because like, oh, cool, Bethlehem. No, 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 no. We need to fulfill through Jesus what was spoken that he would come from the town of David. And so Matthew's going out of his way to communicate that. But the second thing that we see happening, right, comes from uh, verses 2, um, or sorry, verse 1 and 2, where he says, uh, Behold, wise men, or magi, and some, some of your Bibles may say, from the east, came to Jerusalem. So we have wise men, right? So they're looking for Jesus. But the reason that this is important is based on all the information we have of the Magi, scholars are almost certain that these are not Jews. These are actually Gentiles. So what's interesting is these wise men who are also Gentiles, why is it that God would send Gentiles to worship the king of the Jews? if he's only here for the Jews. And so what Matthew is helping us understand in chapter two in this first verse is that I'm sending not just the Jews, not just the nation of Israel. He didn't just come for the people that he's ultimately going to rescue from a earthly home. He's also here to rescue people that don't even know they need him yet. He's not just here for the Jews. He's also here for the Gentiles. And so as we see God calling the wise men to go worship Jesus, what we see happening right here out of the gate is what was going on in the Old Testament where only the Jews had access to Jesus. What was going on in the Old Testament where only Jews had access to God through the temple, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. What we see happening in the Old Testament where all of God's covenant were reserved for this people group, right? What was happening then is no longer happening now. And Matthew's giving us a picture of it out of the gate. Now, this is good news for us. You know why? Because unless any of you in here are Jewish, which if you are, good for you, for the rest of us, we're Gentiles. So this is the, this is the very first moment in the Bible where Gentile access to Jesus happens, which means for all of us that don't have a Jewish bloodline, this is a moment of celebration. This is a praise God moment because God came to people who had no access and gave them access to a God they could not know before now. So this is a beautiful moment. And so when we just read, they're like, oh, the wise men came to see Jesus. Cool. No, 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 no. Pause for a second. This is a big deal because God has revealed himself to people that he has never revealed himself to before now, at least not in this way, and has brought them to the Messiah so that they could see Jesus and worship Jesus. And this is a big deal. So now things are shifting, right? So Matthew makes it a point in chapter one. And so there's another thing that happens in chapter one, and we did not have any, we did not have time to do this last month. But one of the things that Matthew does in chapter one, you guys remember the 40 something names we read? All right, we're not gonna do that again. But, if we had time, we could have spent an hour just on the list of names. And the reason we could have done that is Matthew was being very strategic with that list of names. Because in that list of names were Israelites or Jews, if you will. right? But Gentiles were also on that list as well. They couldn't see God and know God at that time the way that the Jewish people did. But they still had a role to play in getting Jesus to his ultimate end. 
And so not only that, we also see prophecy happening in those names and a number of other things happening in those names. So in Matthew chapter 1, we see a lot happening that if you just read names, you don't understand. But if we, if we start to break it down, we can see that God was using people that should not have been used the whole time he was getting us to Jesus. Which should be an encouragement for all of us that are people that we feel like should not be being used, helping get people to Jesus. Right? So, like, this is, this is amazing that Matthew is pointing some of these things out to us. Right? And so then we go to verse number 6. And so the, the wise men go to see Jesus. And, uh, and I'm going to pick up at 5 to make 6 make sense. So they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, which is where Jesus was, for so it was written by the prophet... And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Right? So that comes from, if you want to know, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet makes a proclamation. He says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so God speaks through Micah. And then what happens is we see Matthew quoting it as the fulfillment. So as Jesus comes from this place, he's fulfilling what the Old Testament made us a promise on. But Micah goes a step further in chapter 5, verse 4, where he says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus' greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And as we start to dabble in that, we start to dabble into the world of eschatology, which we are not going to do tonight. That's book of Revelation, in case you don't know. Eschatology is the study of the end times. We are not doing that tonight. And we definitely aren't doing it in 45 minutes. All right. So now we have another fulfilled prophecy. Because again, what is Matthew trying to do? Matthew's trying to let us know that Jesus is the Messiah that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he's harmonizing the Old Testament, right? And so he's, he's wanting to accomplish all that. And so he's pointing out how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. Let's keep going, all right? I want you to jump down to verse 8 because this is where uh, we start to see Herod acting wild. All right. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know, we already talked about it. Is he really going to worship him? No. What does he want to do? All right. He wants to take him out. Absolutely. So he, he's going there and he wants to find the child. And so the wise men go, but they don't bring Herod the news, right? We know that. So let's go to verse 13 because I want to, we want to unpack this a little bit. I kind of want to show you a few things. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you to. All right. Now, this is important because when we get to 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, this is important as well. Matthew is saying this for a reason because in Hosea 11.1, there was a prophecy. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt. Egypt, I called my son. So again, we see another place where God had made a promise that he was going to pull his son out of Egypt 
And that's exactly what we see happening in Matthew 2. Again, so again, I'm just trying to reinstill to you, Matthew is accomplishing a lot in chapter 2 beyond just what you're reading, right? He's trying to show us all the ways that Jesus was fulfilling what God said he would be. Because again, he's the king, but no one on the land believes he's the king. So, and, and why don't they believe he's the king? Because he's saying, I'm not going to establish the kingdom you think I will. And so you're going, then you can't be real because we know what we're waiting for, right? And so what is Matthew doing? Matthew's going out of his way to say, no, 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 no. He is the king because of Isaiah, Hosea, Micah. So he's moving through the list saying, in case you are doubting, let me show you one more reason why we know he's the king. Okay, so that's what's being accomplished here. Now, then we get to verse 16. When Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to that time when he got the information. Now, this is, this is important. So let's look at two different things that he's accomplishing, right? We, we, we mentioned earlier that Matthew wanted to accomplish three things, right, in, in chapter 2. He wanted to show how Jesus was sent to both the Jews and the Gentiles. We covered that, right, with the Magi. Everybody remember, yes? All right, so we see that Jesus is sent to both the Jews and the Gentiles. But the next thing he wants to show is that he's the fulfillment of the seed of David, right? And that he's the greater David that would come. So David is the king. Jesus is coming as king. So there's a promised king of the Jews. David was the greatest king of the Jews. All right. And so David was amazing. Everybody loved David. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. Right. They sung songs about David. David was great unless your wife was bathing on the roof next to his house. (laughs) Then you might not have liked him very much. If you don't know that story, go check it out. (sighs) Other than that, David was the greatest king right, of Israel. But there's a greater king coming, is what God was saying through the prophet, that from David's lineage, a king is coming that will be greater than David. And so we see that not only is he fulfilling the Jew-Gentile reconciliation through Jesus, we also see that the greater king greater than David is coming. So we see the seed of David is bringing a king that is greater than David. So we've checked that box, right? And so then what we're going to notice right here in verse 16 is we're going to see how Jesus mirrors Moses. And so what happens is Jesus in verse 16, right? We just read it. Let's read it again. Herod saw that he was tricked by the wise men. So what is he going to do? He's going to have all the kids under two years old murdered. Anybody remember what happened to Moses? And why he got floated down the river? Because Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, which was the ruler of Egypt, was noticing that the the Jewish people were starting to outnumber the Egyptians. And he's going, hey, we're going to have a problem on our hand in about 20 years. Because they're having babies like crazy right now. And they're going to outnumber us. And when they can outnumber us, they'll outpower us. We'll no longer have slaves. We'll be theirs. And he says, what, we, what we're going to have to do is we need to kill all the baby boys so that they can't procreate over the next generation. We'll miss a generation, and then we don't have to worry about them overpopulating us and overpowering us. That's what Pharaoh did. So what happens? He puts out the kill order. We see Moses' mother tries to hide Moses. 
He gets to a certain age. She says, I can't hide him anymore. She floats him down the river, right? And as she floats him down the river, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, right? And essentially adopts Moses after getting Moses' mom to help raise him on accident. This is Jerry Springer stuff, man. This is wild. So... So Moses' mother helps raise him and gives him his Jewish roots while Pharaoh's daughter is also raising him, giving his intellect. So he's being raised in the smartest, most powerful, richest household while also being given his roots, his Jewish roots. And many of you know the story, but he ends up uh, killing an Egyptian that was beating up uh, an Israelite. He flees, right? He flees from Egypt and God brings Moses back to rescue his people. All right, we're all caught up on that story. All right, so let's, let's talk about Jesus for a second because Jesus is born and because he's a threat, the same way the Jewish children were a threat to Pharaoh, the king of the Jews is a threat to Herod. And so the same way Pharaoh put out a kill order on Moses' generation, Herod puts out a kill order on Jesus' generation. And then Moses flees so that he can be rescued. Jesus flees with Joseph so that he can be saved. Moses returns to rescue his people. Jesus returns to rescue his people. And we can see the story of Jesus and Moses. And we can see all these parallels that Matthew is helping us connect the dots on to see that they're being connected. Now, this is important for a number of reasons, right? One is it helps us see, again, I've told you guys this before, but Jesus is always the greater version of all your favorite favorite Bible characters. Jesus is the greater David, right? David killed Goliath, which was the giant no one could kill, but Jesus killed sin, which was the giant we couldn't kill, right? Jonah was thrown overboard to save the people in the boat, right? Because they were going to die without him. And we threw Jesus overboard because we were going to die. If we didn't throw Jesus on the cross, we would have died without him and went to hell, right? And we can go through person after person. So we can look at Moses. We can see it show up. We can look at Joshua. We can see it show up. We can look at David. We can see it show up. Every great hero of the Old Testament is just a mirror to Jesus, And that's what Matthew's goal is, even with Moses, is to show us and the readers, right, that Jesus is the greater Moses. So not only is he the greater King David, he's also the greater Moses. And we'll look through all the passages and realize how he's he's the greater version of all of our Old Testament heroes. And so he shows us this. But there's another thing that I think is not written to us, but when we look at this, we do need to grapple with. And I'm going to dance into a little bit of sensitive territory, but it's necessary because this is what verse 16 invites us to to ask ourselves. And I'm going to phrase it like this because I want you to think about it before I give you the answer. If Pharaoh did it to Moses and Herod did it to Jesus... And the enemy was at work with both of them. Could we not point out that death of innocent children is the way of the enemy? So what would a 2023 version of Pharaoh and Herod look like? Not a person, not a person. Please don't say that out loud. Jeez, that was almost bad. But what, what would a spirit 
of Herod and the spirit of Pharaoh in 2023 look like? Abortion. Now, please hear my heart. If you are in this room and you have had an abortion, this is in no way my attempt to put guilt or shame on you. Please know that from the, from, from the depth of my heart. I in no way want you to feel like I am pointing a finger at you or trying to make you feel bad. What I am trying to show you is the spirit that reigns in our country that will kill innocent children is demonic. And we have to be a voice that stands up against it. We have to. Because they tried to do it to Moses, they tried to do it to Jesus, and I believe that's what the enemy is currently trying to do. Now, if you have been one of those people, the same grace that saved me from all the things I went through in my life and all the ways that I denied Jesus for so long is the same grace that is here for you. So please understand we are not interested in picking out certain parts of our lives and making some of them worse for some people. And some, No, no, no. We are a church that views sin equally. And so whether it's the drug addiction or the abortion, what, what, no matter what it is, that part doesn't matter. The grace of Jesus to rescue you from that and pull you out of that is the beauty of the gospel. So please know my heart. That I'm not trying to, to, I'm certainly not trying to beat you up. And do please, 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 please do not walk in this room or out of this room tonight with a cloak of shame because that has been you. What I'm inviting you to realize is that though that might have been a decision you made, it is a decision you can help someone else not make. Because, because prayerfully what is happening through the text, because we don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads us. What is happening through this text is you are realizing that though that might have been something that you were involved in, it doesn't need to be something that is okay moving forward. Can we agree on that, church? And so I'm inviting you to realize one of the key elements of Matthew 2 and him telling this story is what we pull out of this text is the realization that one of the enemy's greatest goals throughout history has been not to take out adults who have a calling, but take them out before they become adults with a calling. If we can get them in the womb, we don't have to worry about them being world changers as adults. And we have to be a voice that takes a stand for life. With that said, we also have to be a voice that stands for all of life. We also have to be a voice that speaks against the injustice that goes on in communities and neighborhoods where people feel like they have no choice. We have to be a voice for women of color and minority people groups who are treated differently in their pregnancies than other races. We do have to do those things also. So it's not just say, have the baby. It's, yes, have the baby, but now we have work to do as a community to help raise this child up to follow the Lord. Okay, so... So my invitation for all of us is to grapple in tension the reality that we are a voice for the children in the womb, but we also have to be a voice for the children once they're out and take care of them, which is why we are in our elementary schools, in our middle schools. Nate and the students team, they're making the impact all over high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools across our counties. Why? Because it's not just the one in the womb that matters. It's also the one that's outside of the womb that matters. And so we're going to do work holistically. So... 
now that I've dealt with that. We see that he escaped Moses, going back to Moses, he escaped to return to lift his people from their bondage. Jesus escaped, but then he returns and then he ends up in Nazareth to ultimately go to the cross and lift people from their bondage, their sin. Jeremiah 31, 15, this is what the Lord says. Revisiting verse 18. So the, the prophecy given in Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And what the prophet Jeremiah was talking about was, was this exact thing where the children are being murdered and Rachel losing her child because murdered and ultimately coming to the place where we have to recognize what the, that the enemy is at work. And we have to take our place, recognizing that the enemy is at work. And what is it that we're being called to do? So, so here's the way I would phrase this. If Jesus is supposed to be three things, what does that mean for us? He's the king of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. So what does that mean? If he can reconcile that, he can reconcile anything. And so we have to be people of reconciliation because we are people of Jesus. We have access to Jesus because he didn't just come for Jews, he came for Gentiles, right? So we have a beauty there. He is the greatest king, greater than David. For the Jews, that means something very special. But for us as Gentiles, and I even say in the New Testament context, he is the greatest king you could ever serve even better than yourself. So following Jesus demands, say demands. Demands. Following Jesus demands you take yourself off the throne. There is a greater king. He has arrived. Get down from the throne of ruling your own life and saying you can live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. No, for believers, you have a better king. And serving him will always serve you better. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, when you rule your own life and you give yourself what you want, it never meets the satisfaction you thought it would. And so we have a better king. But then just like Moses became a savior to his people, not only do we have a better king, we have a better savior. Because as much as you try to save yourself, you can't. And as much as you try to work hard enough to earn it, as much as you try to follow all the right rules, as much as you try to do all the right things, you and I both realize that at the end of the day, when we sit down and we put our head back, we can still point out all the ways we were wrong. If you could be perfect today, you would puff your chest out in self-righteousness, therefore still needing a savior. And so Jesus is our, reconcil- our reconciliation, Jesus is our king, and Jesus is our savior. And we need to treat him accordingly. And that's what Matthew 2 is getting at. And so we're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to go into some reflection, because we want to assess, we want to look in the mirror tonight. What are the ways that you've yet to let true reconciliation take place in your heart? What are the ways... What, what are the ways, and, and I would even say it like this, what are some of the ways 
that you are in your Christianity are not letting yourself authentically experience Jesus Christ? What are the walls that you've put up in your heart? For some of you during worship, you look around and you see some people in an abandonment of themselves and you want to know, like, why are they? For some of you, you go, man, I wish I could do that. And the reason why you've yet to be able to do that is because you have not reconciled in your own heart that he is worth worship. You're worried about what you might look like. You're trying to maintain control. And Jesus went to great lengths to make it possible that you could worship him. So worship him. Worship him. I don't know. It's going to feel funny. Okay. So did walking when you started doing that. But you figured it out. All right. So my invitation to you is look at what you want to be and do it until you feel it. Because you may do it at first, and you're like, this feels weird, (laughs) right? But I promise you, if you'll channel your heart, and you'll even get in the posture of thanking Jesus, Jesus, you did a lot. I I should not have access to you. But I do because of your grace. But even as a Gentile, like as a a non-Jewish person, as a not an Israelite, as like, I should not have access to you, but for some reason, in your own sovereignty, you chose to save me anyways. And from that place of gratitude, lifting your hands in the air, because that's biblical, by the way, as in, a, in, a, in a state of surrender, saying, all right, God, I worship, I'm lifting you up to where you belong, and my hands are open to receive from you. That's what this is. I'm lifting you up to where you belong and you can't receive things with a closed fist. So what am I doing? I'm getting ready to receive from you. I want to experience your presence. I want to know you. And those are powerful moments where God meets us. So thank you, God, for reconciliation. But then thank you that you're a king. Thank you that you're the greater king. Thank you that you're the king we could never be. Thank you that Thank you that you sit on the throne. God, I could think of three decisions right now that I would have made differently than you made, and they could have destroyed my life. Thank you for being a good king. And then thank you for being a savior. Thank you for being the good savior. You laid down your life. You didn't have to. You took this unrighteous sinner and just gave him righteousness. 